Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 14. I have a new little uh, format that I'm using uh, for how I organize my sermons. It, it won't, I'm not sure it'll make a big difference to you, but I have a, the one problem with this new format is I have absolutely no idea how much material I have here. So you may get out 15 minutes early or I might be right at 7 o'clock. So we shall see. Uh, if history is any indicator, I have plenty of material. So you may not get out till tomorrow morning. Anyway. Let me uh, open up with a little quote here. Lewis Cheney writes this parable in, uh, I'm sorry, Lois, not Lewis. Lois Cheney writes this parable in her book uh, called God is No Fool. Once a man said, if I had some extra money, I'd give it to God, but I have just enough to support myself and my family. And the same man said, well, if I had a little extra time, I'd give it to God, but every minute is taken up with my job, my family, my clubs, and, and what have you, every single minute. He also said, if I had talent, I'd give it to God, but I have no lovely voice. I have no special skill. I've never been able to lead a group. I can't think cleverly or quickly the way I would like to. And God was touched. And although it was unlike him, God gave that man money, time, and a glorious talent. And then he waited and waited and waited. And then after a while, God shrugged his shoulders, and he took back all three gifts from the man. And after a while, the man sighed and said, If I only had some of that money back, I'd give it to God. If I only had some of that time, I'd give it to God. If I could only rediscover that glorious talent, I'd give it to God. And God said, Oh, be quiet. And the man told some of his friends, You know, I'm not so sure I believe in God anymore. The story here of Samson is one of the strangest in the entire Bible because here's a man who seems to have all kinds of blessings, doesn't he? He has all kinds of advantages. You look at his life and you think, this guy is going to do some amazing things for God. He has all the privileges, all the advantages that, that one could really have and probably should have set him up to be the greatest judge out of all of them. And yet... This is the story of the life of a man who's so richly anointed with the potential for blessing and victory, and yet his life instead is marked with disgrace and defeat. He did less for God's people, believe it or not, Samson did, than any other judge. Daryl Block put it this way. On the one hand, he's born and buried as a hero, but on the other, he's a bandit, a trickster, and one who frivolously fritters away his extraordinary callings and gifts. That's kind of Sam Samson's life in a nutshell here. Samson was to be a leader in Israel. He was to be God's instrument to deliver his people. But unfortunately, his walk with God was erratic at best. See, while he was trying to conquer the Philistines, he forgot that he had to conquer himself first. And it, his life is marked with far too infrequent contact with God, to say the very least. How could it be that someone with all the advantages given to, him, given to them by God could so easily fall short of such outstanding potential? How could that be? Well, the book of Judges shows us that no other judge had more potential to be used by the Lord than Samson. His life was really just a failure, though, at the end of the day, before the Lord. 
Well, let's look tonight where Samson begins to stumble here in his spiritual walk. Now, we're in chapter 14, starting a new chapter, chapter 14. We saw previously that in Samson's day, the Philistines were the oppressors of Israel. And our text told us before that they were pressed them for 40 years, 40 years. However, unlike any of the other oppressors that we've seen so far in Judges, what's the one thing that's missing in this 40-year oppression? Yeah, there's no cry for deliverance, right? There's no cry for deliverance in all of this. Now, remember, the Philistines didn't come in and conquer Israel using force. Do you remember what they did? They sought instead to assimilate Israel through the tools of intermarriage, right? They said, you know what? We're not going to go in and conquer them and oppress them militarily. We're going to go in and have our daughters marry their sons and our sons marry their daughters. And then once they're integrated in, we'll just start pulling them away slowly and surely and just kind of, and just kind of mold them right into our Philistine way of life. Secondly, remember the Philistines were great iron workers, and so they had great weapons of war and great weapons for agriculture. Israel is an agrarian society. They're an agricultural society. So you could be plowing with wood or you could be plowing with steel. Which do you think is better? And so, of course, they were making money. They were happy to purchase these farm implements and weapons from the Philistines. And the Philistines were happy because they were making money. So it was this... And then, of course, the Israelites, their crops were better and bigger, so they were making more money. So as long as everything was good and it was very affluent for them, they just slowly but surely kind of molded right in and assimilated with them. So the people were enjoying a great time of influence, and they liked it. And they were so assimilated into the Philistine worldview and thinking and lifestyle, they didn't really care if they were delivered. Who cares if the Philistines are oppressing us? We're making money. Life is good. What's the problem? So comfortable in their influence, so comfortable with their new assimilated families that they have completely reasoned for themselves that God's going to be okay with whatever they're doing. By the time Samson comes on the scene, the sons of Israel are so assimilated with the Philistines, that they are content with their life of oppression. They don't even care to be delivered by the Lord in their own eyes. And this is important. In their own eyes, they were, there was really nothing really wrong with what they were doing. They were okay. Now also remember up to this point in the story that we had, we'd met Samson's mother. We don't know her name. She's just Mrs. Manoah, right? Mrs. Manoah or Samson's mother or Manoah's wife. Remember, she could not bear any children and thus her and her husband had prayed for a son. And then last chapter we found that, that the angel of the Lord came and told her of their son's birth, his impending son's birth. And they were to name him Samson, that he would have a special calling before the Lord. He was going to do something special. And we saw that the angel of the Lord specified that Samson was to be raised up from birth under a Nazarite vow, right? We looked at that extensively in Numbers chapter 6. What did that mean? That meant he was to live a life of separation. Now, isn't it ironic that the problem with the Israelites is that they're not separated enough. They are to be God's separated people, holy and consecrated unto the Lord. But at this point, they're so assimilated in that you can't really tell the difference between the two of them. How does God remedy that? He sends one who is to be separated 
to separate his people from the Philistines again. Interesting. To be a Nazarite meant that he was to live a life of separation. He was not to have anything to drink made from the vine. He was not to touch any dead body, nor to cut his hair. So now in these verses, we're going to see for the first time, we get a chance to now to meet kind of an older Samson here, right? And we get to see his stumble and his commitment to his relationship with the Lord. Samson, with his Nazarite vow of separation from the world, and unto God should have known that he's not just supposed to be a wandering around the enemy's territory. It's one pointed out by commentators that when it says that Samson went down to the territory of the Philistines, that he not only went down physically, he also went down spiritually right at this point. So let's look at this, shall we? Let's look at verse 1. Now, we're going to find out Samson's first stumble. Then Samson went down to Timnah, and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So first of all, we see that Samson has no business going down to Timnah in the first place, right? To look at, to do what? What does he want to do? He wants, he wants a wife. And so he wants to, or wants to go down there and party and find a wife, whatever he's going to do. But he just, he's in the wrong place, right? He's going down there to look at the daughters of the Philistines. Now, Timnah is only about five miles from where Samson's parents lived. Uh, it would have been an easy walk, but it was in enemy territory. He's not supposed to be there at all. He's not supposed to be mingling around with them. He's not supposed, certainly not supposed to be searching for a wife there. But having gone into the enemy territory, to the city of Timnah, Samson now finds himself tempted. He's now going to be ensnared by sin. And he falls into lust at first sight with a young woman from that city. Now remember, at this time, the cruel, wicked, idolatrous Philistines occupied the city. And these are the very people from whom Samson's mission is to do what? To deliver his people from. But instead of going down there and the purposes of the Lord, he's down there to find a wife from the enemy. Now, there's no good reason for Samson to go into that enemy's territory. And going there, Samson again was tempted. He was tempting the Lord also, requiring him to protect him from that temptation. Now, I want to kind of draw this parallel to what happens today when we're looking for someone to have a relationship with. Okay, when We're looking for a spouse or we want to have a relationship with somebody. So I'm glad we're recording this because we have lots of young people here. So I just want to kind of point out some of the things and the ways that Samson goes terribly wrong here. Okay. So as Christians, we need to be, we need to make sure we're not wandering through the enemy's territory when we're looking for a spouse. We as Christians need to be careful not to go and to flirt with sin because we might end up in the same identical situation that Samson found himself on this day because it's not going to be very long before he's ensnared by this sin. And it all started when he went looking for love in all the wrong places. Okay, That's where he is. Now we are told to always flee temptation, not flirt around with it. So here's the first point here. If we want to avoid choosing the wrong person as a spouse, then there are certain places we just ought not to be as believers. 
just certain places we just ought not to be. Turn in your Bible to the New Testament here. You can keep your place in Judges. Go all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to come back to this passage in Second Corinthians 6. You just keep it, mark it in your Bible somehow. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But I want you to see here verse 17. He's talking about what does a believer have to do with an unbeliever here in this passage in Second Corinthians 6. Look at what he says in verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and do what? And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. You can find the same thing, that same message again in the Old Testament in Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? Pretty familiar with most of you here, right? What is that? All right. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? What's the point here? The point is, is listen, if I'm looking for someone to have a relationship, which I'm not, if I was, if I was single and I was looking for a spouse or I was looking to have someone in a relationship with, and I'm looking for a godly woman, I'm proud. There are certain places I'm probably just not going to ever go thinking the, the chances of me meeting a godly woman here are slim to none. And secondly, what am I doing on here? Because I might be ensnared and entangled in a sin if I'm in a place where that's not honoring to God. I mean, if we want to avoid choosing the wrong person as a spouse, we should avoid the wrong places, and we ought to embrace the right places, right? Look at Psalm 1, verse 2. Right, the first one is, How blessed the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In other words, there are some things that I could be doing. There's some places I should be going. There's things that I should be doing. And if I was a young person and I was looking to, for somebody or somebody was interested in me or I was looking for somebody to have a relationship with, there are just certain places I would not go. Where should Christians be looking for other Christians to have relationships with? Well, the church would be a great place, right? That would be a nice place to start. Bible colleges. Uh, other godly Christians, friends of other godly Christians, life groups, merge, right? What you do, right? Gathering people together, youth group events, not necessarily marriage, but relationship. Uh, now, some people have had some success on online Christian dating, and others have been like, no way, right? Wouldn't do it. So the only thing I would tell you about online Christian dating services that I would tell you to be careful about is that you can say anything you want as you're doing your profile on your internet and you don't really know what that person is like. It could be a really good person. It could be a very strong Christian or not at all. And so uh, it's worked out well for some and for others, not so much. The advice I always give when someone is I just like to find a godly person to have a relationship with, with the opposite sex is I want you to find someone who is living for Jesus with every fiber of their body and run as fast as you can and come alongside them. And if you do that, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. 
So if we want to avoid choosing the wrong person as a spouse to have, or someone to have a relationship, we should avoid the wrong places, and we ought to embrace the right places. Now look at verse 2, back in our text in Judges here. It says here, So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. He really sounds like a good guy, doesn't he? Very gracious with his parents here. Not so much. Okay. So there's no question what attracted Samson to this woman. What was it? Her sparkling personality, her devotion to the Lord. He hasn't even spoken to her at this point. One thing and one thing only. I want to read First uh, John. You can just look this up later. First John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's what Samson has. Samson gives in to the lust of his eyes. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to look at a beautiful woman or a handsome man or beautiful things? No, it does not mean. However, if we look at someone or something and it compromises our relationship with Christ or it compromises our relationship to the truth of Scripture, then we should not be doing it. That's wrong to do that. That's the lust of the eyes. Remember, Eve saw, coveted, took of the fruit that God had forbidden. That's called the lust of the eyes. And it continues on in the lives of Christians today, day in and day out. How many folks have violated God's principles of purity because they gave in to the lust of their eyes? How many families have been destroyed because a husband or wife gave in to the lust of the eyes, the temptation? Bad decisions are made when we give in to the lust of the eyes. Well, what should we do? First, you should have safeguards in place to ensure you don't get ensnared by the lust of the eyes. What safeguards do you have in place? Men. What safeguards do you have in place for the Internet? What things are in place to make sure that you're not looking at the things that you should not be looking at? What safeguards do you have in place if a woman is dressed in a way that's distracting to you? Let's put it that way. What safeguards do you have, men and women? What guardrails do you have in place to make sure that physical contact does not progress beyond the boundaries God has set for marriage, young people? Do you have things in place? Do you have guardrails set up? Women, what guardrails do you have in place to deal with peer pressure or pressure from your boyfriend or being placed in situations where the temptation for physical contact will be far greater than normal? I hope you have guardrails set up for each of those scenarios. Because without these guardrails in place, it's very easy to fall into the temptation that accompanies the lust of the eyes. Just as there are guardrails on a highway, they're designed to keep a wreck from occurring. And God wants us to put guardrails around our marriage, and around sex, to keep these wrecks from occurring in our lives. Let me share this with you also. There was a girl that had her boyfriend's name tattooed on her arm, but then they unexpectedly broke up. Now that she was available to date someone else, she comp contemplated what to do about that tattoo that's not the name of the guy she's dating now. She didn't want to walk around with the mark of a former boyfriend, so she got the tattoo removed at great pain, and it left a great scar that took a long time to heal. 
Might I share with you that many of us today are wearing tattoos on our souls because we didn't put guardrails in place to protect ourselves from those situations. Secondly, beyond the safeguards, let me say that if your criteria for a spouse is based primarily on appearance, you're going to be sadly disappointed in your choice as time marches on in marriage. Okay? Can I just say that? For example, men, what about when your wife starts having children? Can I just tell you that her body is going to change? It may not look like it did when it was 20. There are things that she's going to, and it's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But if your criteria is all just visual, then you might be disappointed at some of the changes. Ladies, what about when your man starts to get Dunlop disease? That's where in his belly Dunlop's over his belt, right? What, what about that? When it, what about when he starts losing his hair? Is it all over? What about when sweatpants and a hair tie become standard apparel on your wife? Not to be outdone, ladies, what about when your husband's grooming habits start to fade away slowly but surely? Listen, if your primary reason for dating someone is simply lust of the eyes, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. God forbid, but what if there's a terrible accident or a return from war or a brutal attack that changes your spouse's appearance? Would it be all over? Would you leave them? Would you want your spouse to leave you if it was you? Listen, you better be looking at the things of the heart and not simply the lust of the eyes. Marriage is hard. It's hard enough, and it requires real real commitment to the marriage. Good times and bad times. When you're at your best, when you're not quite at your best. And it better not be some superficial, inch-deep kind of commitment based upon appearance, or it's doomed before you ever start. Because you are going to change physically. No doubt about it, both of you. And lastly, can I tell you that marriages based on emotional love are only a few hundred years old? I think I share this with everybody I do premarital counseling with. But this is kind of relatively a new thing in the span of human history. Before that, all marriages were arranged. This is kind of a newer thing. Started about the 1700s. Before that, everybody did that. And most of the marriages were arranged. And ironically, the rate of divorce was significantly lower than it is today. Some of that, of course, was the stigma that came from being divorced, but also had a lot to do with your family having great input into what kind of person would be a good fit for you spiritually as well. So if you want to avoid choosing the wrong person as a spouse, we we should avoid the wrong places, and we ought to embrace the right places. Point number two, if we want to avoid choosing the wrong person as a spouse, we must avoid the snare of the lust of the eyes. And here's point number three. We should seek godly counsel, okay? Seek godly counsel. Samson's going against all the godly counsel. Look at verse 3 in Judges chapter 14. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? What Samson is doing is doing something that is strictly forbidden in Scripture, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, says this. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. 
and then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So look at here, we go back into chapter 14, right? His father and mother are a bit concerned over Samson's choices. The girl that he's never talked to, that they just saw from afar, that he's attracted to visually, and that's it. And so they raised their concern. Now, they would have had some concerns had their son been just a normal Israelite, but he's a designated Nazarite on a special mission from God, informed to them by God himself, by the angel of the Lord. <coughs> so I'm sure they remember the visit from the angel of the Lord and what Samson is supposed to do. How can he possibly fulfill his mission in life with a woman while married to a Philistine woman? How is he going to separate God's people from the Philistine people if he's married to one of them? Is their question? Seems fair enough. So imagine coming home to find out that instead of taking the Philistines on in battle, he wants to marry one of them. They're not happy. And so Manoah and his wife expressed their concerns. Surely, <coughs> excuse me, surely there's some young woman from among your tribe, or at least some Israelite here somewhere, one of God's covenant people, that he might find as an acceptable wife. Now, notice he points out here, he says here that, uh, why, why would you go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? Now, that word circumcision is important in our text because the circumcision was the sign of the covenant of God that he had made with Israel as his covenant people. They're not, this is not a racial or an ethnical, or ethical, I'm sorry, ethnicity issue, but an issue, of mar, uh, but an issue of marrying someone outside the covenant of the Lord. That's really what their concern is here. So how, uh, and why was this such a concern here? Well, look at Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34. So go back a couple books here, maybe three or four, Exodus 34, verse 11. And here God says, be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you to, into which you are going, or it will become what? A snare, a trap in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, small g, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. What is his, what is his point here? He's, he's concerned. Right? God is saying, this is what's going to happen if you start marrying someone from outside the covenant. 
because they're worshiping false gods. They're making things out of, you know, out of uh, trees and out of their molten steel. They're making forming and shaping gods, and they're going to start worshiping, and you guys start marrying, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to start doing that as well. Guess what's happening in Judges chapter 14? This, what he just said, what happened. So the point here I want to, for you to know is that keeping the covenant with God in regards to not intermarrying was all about what would happen to his people if they began to assimilate with somebody who was other than his covenant people. Which incidentally is exactly what's happening here. Now, you do have to kind of wonder if Samson's parents truly questioned Samson's choice for a wife for among the Philistines. And why did they not refuse to arrange his marriage for him? Why did they just go, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. It's been pointed out that parents of the groom would normally have held the wedding feast in their own home. However, they because they disagreed with the union, that they instead chose to require that the feast be held by the family of the Philistine woman. However, they should have instead forbid the union because it was a direction, it was a violation of God's law. You know, we as Christian parents, we have a responsibility to raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And there are times as parents, even when our children get older, that we need to say, no, say, I love you. I'm not going to do that. It's a violation of God's law. And we may have to tell them and forbid some of their actions as long as they're living under our roof. Now, when the kids move out on their own, then we as Christians can no longer control their actions. And, but hopefully we've made and done a decent job along the way and instilled those values. Not that they won't ever make mistakes. They'll probably make plenty. Unlike us, as we didn't make any mistakes when we were growing up, right? Wrong. So now the Philistines, technically the Phil, uh, technically the, illustri- the Israelites were able to marry the Philistines because they weren't part of the seven nations that I read off for you before. Yet on the other hand, Samson is breaking one of the principles of Scripture, isn't he? By marrying anybody outside the covenant of God. And we see that same principle again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's head back there again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Hopefully you kept your place. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together, Paul says, with whom? Unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So the word yoked here is meant to to convey what? A binding relationship like marriage. Why not? Why Why can't I date somebody? There can be no spiritual unity in such a marriage. You're not going to pray together. You're not going to worship together. You won't serve God together. You won't rear your children with godly examples and principles. But I know, I know, so-and-so who married an unsafe person, and that person accepted Christ later in life. Let me tell you, that's only by the grace of God. And for every one of those that you tell me, I could tell you a hundred that didn't work out that way. And their marriages were destroyed. 
and their families suffer greatly. Sometimes people will say something like, I know they're not believers, but it's not a problem because my boyfriend or girlfriend, they completely respect my faith and they'll give me complete freedom to worship as I choose. But remember, the context of this command is to not be unequally yoked is what? It's all about adultery, idolatry, I'm sorry. It's about not letting another idol into your heart. And that's exactly what happens. What is an idol? Anything that takes the place of God. Slowly but surely, here's what happens. Your spouse doesn't share your faith. Then there's this ever-increasing pressure for you to avoid that pressure by minimizing God in your life. So you just start trying to push God out to the boundaries, to the outskirts in your life. Slowly but surely, God gets pushed into the margins of your life. And instead of being the central reason for everything that you do, everything you think, everything you say, God is now relegated to the fringes of your life. He's now an afterthought. And then there's this constant daily pressure to replace God with your spouse or with your children or with your work or with your fun or with your entertainment. And that's why the Bible says, for believers are not to marry unbelievers because he knows what will happen in your heart. Listen, it's hard enough to be a Christian in today's world than to have a spouse who's fighting against you every step of the way, who doesn't believe in the same things you do, who doesn't love God, who doesn't want to serve God. Well, the Bible is just another book. It's a, it sits on the end table. They dust around it once a week. Listen, you are headed to trouble. You simply cannot violate the word of God and expect God to bless your life. One caveat to that is if you're already married to an unbeliever, perhaps you've come to faith and, and they never did. The Bible insists that we should not seek divorce from them, but actively seek to build as good a marriage as you can in the hopes that they too will surrender their lives to Christ. Now, Samson wouldn't listen to his parents' godly counsel in this matter. He had a strong body, but he was a weakling spiritually. He was weakling. Listen, the second most important decision you're ever going to make in your life, besides trusting Christ, is what? Who you're going to marry. And if you have godly parents, they deserve to be heard. At least prayerfully consider the counsel they give you. And listen to what they're saying. And love can sometimes be blind. Family can help you think that out a little bit. You know, I, I think back now, and I, I think I, the being married now for a long time, I would tell you that what a person is on the inside is far more important than what they are on the outside. That the things that I find most attractive or irresistibly, irresistibly attractive in my wife today have a lot more to do with who she is in Christ than what it she looks like on the outside, which I think is still beautiful. But that's far less important to me than who she is in Christ. So, Samson, how did he go wrong? Young people, if you're looking for somebody to date, number one, don't go to the wrong places to try and find somebody to date. Number two, put up guardrails and protect yourself. Protect yourself from the lust of your eyes. And number three, seek some godly counsel on this person that you're going to make a vow before the Lord forever. That's how the Lord views it. The world may view it as disposable, but God views it 
happiness forever. Listen, you don't have to commit every mistake in order to learn. You can actually learn from others' mistakes. So let's learn from Sansom's life tonight, shall we? Determine tonight that you will begin making wise choices in your relationship life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for just a short reminder here from this text tonight about how and why it is so important to be so diligent, Lord, to search your word for that person that we're thinking about spending the rest of our life with. And Lord, it starts early, even in the dating process. And it's so easy for us to be fooled and misled by people who aren't really what they say they are. But Father, you can guide us and direct us to other godly people who do want to put you first in their lives who do want to live for you and serve you, who want to grow in grace and knowledge with you. And so, Father, I pray for any in our midst here today, Lord, who are working through their relationships or seeking perhaps someday in the future a relationship, that they would go back and look at this text again and not make the same mistakes that Samson did. Not hang around the wrong places, not fall under the lust of the eyes, the temptation to do that that they would seek some godly counsel before they make a commitment that they might regret. Help us all, Lord, to be discerning, 